folks, this is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. I'm on the tail end of a bit of a man cold, so please excuse my nasally sound today. I wanted to follow up on the last podcast I did on deliberate practice with today's show on the concept of flow and the can of calm. I want to start out by telling you a story about whitewater paddling. I know it's not a medical story, but I think it will work for where we're headed just the same. Two months before I started anesthesia school, I competed in the Green River Whitewater Race near Saluda, North Carolina. The race is considered one of the most challenging and competitive whitewater races in the world. I tell you this not to toot my own horn, I was nowhere near a top paddler in the race, but to help unpack the idea of the green race and this concept of flow. The Green Race is a half mile of Steep Creek Class 5 whitewater nestled in the Green River Gorge of Western North Carolina. Whitewater is graded from Class 1, which is moving but completely calm, to Class 6, which is considered unrunnable or likely to result in severe injury or death if attempted. Class 5 is pretty much the hardest grade that people paddle. It's like a double black diamond tree run in skiing. Most commercial rafting companies run clients down class two to four whitewater with maybe the occasional class five rapid. Many very large, very exciting rapids for commercial rafting companies are class four rapids that guides will say are class five death traps just to increase their chances of getting a good tip uh, for getting you through alive. The Green River Narrows, the section of river where the green race is run, is way too steep and narrow for commercial whitewater rafts. The river at its narrowest spot is a mere six feet wide. This spot actually has a name. It's called The Notch, and it creates the entrance to a rapid named Gorilla. It's named Gorilla because it will eat you in your little colorful whitewater boat like a banana if you screw up. That's one reason for the name, at least. The whole river smashes through this six-foot-wide notch as it drops several feet while also making an almost 90-degree turn before plummeting over an 18-foot drop that then flushes you between two rock walls towards more waterfalls just downstream. It's fun. Promise. The Green Race attracts top paddlers from around the world and runs annually on the first Saturday in November. You can watch YouTube videos of it if you want to get a better idea. The fastest boats in the race are purpose-built long kayaks designed for going straight and fast down rocky creeks. These average about 12 and a half feet long, more bomb-proof sea kayak than a traditional creek boat. Both these and standard whitewater kayaks are used with spray skirts, which fit snugly around a paddler's waist and attach tightly over the boat's cockpit to keep water out of the boat. I didn't paddle either of these kayaks. Instead, I paddled an open whitewater canoe, or OC1, which stands for open canoe, one person. This boat looks like a traditional whitewater kayak. It's short and stubby with a high bow and stern rocker or curved hull on the front and back of the boat, which helps for quick spins in whitewater. But there's no spray skirt. Instead, the bow and stern are stuffed with inflatable airbags that keep most of the water out. Unlike with a kayak and a spray skirt in an open canoe, if you blow your line and crash through a wave or plunge into a hole in whitewater, a good bit of your boat will fill with water, making it much heavier and harder to paddle. So the goal becomes to paddle cleaner, to find better lines because the feedback the river gives you is instantaneous if you don't. Because your boat can take on water and the learning curve to paddling an open whitewater canoe is a bit steeper than with a whitewater kayak, few people paddle them. Fewer people paddle class five creeks in open canoes, and fewer still race the green in OC1s. 
Racing the green became a goal of mine years before I competed. When I was first getting started in Whitewater, all of my paddling buddies were co-instructors of mine at Landmark Learning and Knowles Wilderness Medicine. One of them was Eli Helbert, ostensibly the very best OC1 creek boater in the world. Eli taught me how to roll a canoe, and I had the incredible good fortune of following him down creeks and rivers for a few years. Interestingly, while I was still progressing through class two and three whitewater, other friends of ours told me that once I wanted to get serious about paddling whitewater and progress to class four and five rivers and creeks, I should switch over to paddling a kayak with a spray skirt. They said Eli was a rare breed, that mere mortals just don't paddle canoes in class four and especially not in class five whitewater. I took that as a challenge and figured if I've got one of the best paddlers in the world to train with, I might as well give it a shot. It took years of training and deliberate, very deliberate practice to get to the point where competing in an event like the green race in an open canoe was possible. In the last episode of Anesthesia Guidebook, I talked about the principle of deliberate practice, which was described by cognitive psychologist Anders Ericsson. This kind of practice requires a focused goal with a dedication to work on weaknesses, feedback from a coach, and substantial time. And that's just what I did with paddling. While my friends and I would be cruising down class three runs on easy days on the river, I would constantly push myself to make the most difficult moves possible, to create challenges for myself and simulate on class three or four what I knew was coming in class five whitewater. Pushy, demanding, high consequence moves that required exact timing and precision. After years of progression, I stepped up to class five runs and eventually began running the green. There's an element of unpredictability in whitewater, as with any kind of sport where gravity, speed, the natural environment, and you are interacting. Whether it's mountain biking, snowboarding, surfing, or paddling, no matter how good you are at these sports, the terrain, wind, or water may shift on you and require in-the-moment micro-adjustments to hold your edge, stay on your line, and not wreck yourself. These little adjustments are sometimes understood as intuitive decisions, subconscious actions where your body just knows what to do. It's an incredible feeling to be bobbing in an eddy above the notch, which guards the entrance to Gorilla with the fury of the river churning over boulders as it cascades down the Green River Gorge, and know that your body is perfectly tuned with all of that chaos, that you're ready to charge, proactively engage with the run, and react with split-second precision to whatever the river throws at you. It's an amazing experience, but good paddlers and other athletes are not born with this kind of intuition. You don't start out knowing how to hold your line on a double overhead wave or how to ride switch through the trees or pull off a cross bow boof stroke through the notch. These skills, this intuition is built over thousands of practice laps on easier runs. It's foolish to think that you'll just quote, know what to do when faced with extreme challenge if you haven't put in thousands of hours practicing, dialing in appropriate action and pattern recognition. In future shows, I'll come back and talk a little bit more about system one and system two thinking, but what I'm getting at with this story is the idea or state of flow. This state of balance between the challenge at hand and your skill level, where everything is in tune and you're operating at a fluid state of performance, is called flow. Flow is synonymous with being in the zone. The diagram in the show notes and on Instagram that accompanies this episode shows this zone as the flow channel. And what's interesting about flow is that you don't have to be an extreme athlete to experience it. You can find yourself in a state of flow gardening or playing a ukulele, or baking in your kitchen, 
or intubating a patient, or running a code in the OR. Flow is a state that was described by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He is a world-renowned professor of psychology and has made it his life's work to better understand the human experience of happiness, creativity, and motivation. The state of flow, in the purest sense, describes a state where individuals are caught up in whatever they're doing. They're pleasantly lost in their work or play. Csikszentmihalyi believes flow to be the state of optimal experience, where you're pleasantly and completely absorbed in the task at hand. The awareness of time and even yourself tends to fall away. Some describe flow as hyper-focus or effortless attention. Elements of the state of flow include intrinsic motivation for an intense focus on the task at hand, where your skills are perfectly matched to the challenge, giving you a sense of control through full engagement. While some would argue that this full immersion in an experience where you lose the sense of time and even the sense of yourself is the only pure state of flow or bliss, there are more practical elements of the concept and how it can frame our approach to challenge, skill, and risk. There's a graph that's going to be in the show notes and on Instagram associated with this podcast. It outlines the concept of flow. On the x-axis, which stretches horizontal, is one skill progressing from low to high. The y-axis, which is aligned vertically, outlines the challenge of the experience from low to high. The flow channel moves in a 45-degree angle out from the origination point and denotes the space where skill is matched to the challenge at hand. Importantly, if one's skill is higher than the challenge at hand, boredom is often experienced. However, if the challenge overwhelms one's skill, anxiety ensues. Flow, again, is this optimal state, this channel where you know what to do and how to do it, where your perceived skills match the perceived challenge. Csikszentmihalyi further broke down the experience of individuals along this X and Y axis in the following way. This diagram is also in the show notes and on Instagram. This goes a little bit more in detail than just anxiety on one hand and boredom on the other. If the challenge is low and your skills are low, you might start off experiencing apathy. You're not engaged with the task. Moving out along the X axis, as your skills progress, if the challenge stays low and your skills get higher, you might experience boredom. You progress from apathy to just boredom. Further out with a relatively low challenge and high skill, you're likely to experience relaxation. You're relaxed as you meet a challenge, knowing that your skills far exceed the challenge and you have the situation under control. On the other hand, starting at the point of origin and moving up the y-axis, if your challenge slightly exceeds your skills, you might experience worry. If the challenge gets ratcheted up further, that worry may turn into legitimate anxiety. However, if your skills also match a more significant set of challenges, you're likely to be in a state of arousal. And as the highest degree of challenge that can be matched with the highest level of your skills become aligned, you enter the state of flow. So what does this have to do with anesthesia? Skill progression is not just something that we should think about in terms of rolling out along, you know, from novice to advanced beginner to becoming proficient to competency and then expertise. We should also consider the psychological state of our anesthesia learners, the teams of healthcare providers we work with, and even ourselves as we meet the challenges presented to us in the OR. You don't want your surgeon in a state of true anxiety if they get into a bind, maybe severe bleeding or a problem they don't know how to fix. 
You don't want to find yourself overwhelmed by difficult airway or plummeting blood pressure and not have a plan in the tools and resources to fix the situation. You also don't want to be so bored by what's going on around you that you're apathetic towards maintaining vigilance and a healthy state of arousal to monitor your patients. In terms of teaching, we need to tailor cases and task progression to the skills of our learners. Yes, it would be amazing if every resident showed up knowing how to manage difficult cases, put in arterial and central lines, and intubate with ease. But that's just not the case. You can easily overwhelm a learner by putting them in situations where the challenge far exceeds their skill set. This is common sense, but when we consider where anesthesia learners start and where we know that they need to get to in order to pass boards and take care of patients independently, we can better match a progression of cases, challenges, and escalating responsibility to align with or slightly exceed their current skill set in order to help them grow and achieve mastery. I think of the flow state in this basic anxiety, flow, boredom balance between skill and challenge when I think of the cases that I might be exposed to in my practice and what I need to prepare for. You know, 95% of cases are likely routine and easy for an experienced provider. It's the 5% that you want to train for and be ready for that are going to be very difficult. You know, maybe the mix is 80-20 or, or maybe it's 99 to 1%. But the point is, it's these less common and very difficult cases that depending on your practice setting, you may be very likely exposed to and you want to be prepared for. If you're not, you're likely going to experience a high degree of anxiety when facing those moments and either freeze up or start doing something that doesn't make any sense. Elaine Scarry is a professor of literature at Harvard and wrote a book titled Thinking in an Emergency, in which she presents the idea that swift action and clear thinking are not mutually exclusive. She explores this principle predominantly in how it can shape individual and collective responses to perceived emergencies, how governments, as well as their citizens, through careful and deliberate pre-planning, can achieve better outcomes. She offers the following explanation of how we tend to respond to emergencies. What occurs in an emergency is either immobilization, incoherent action, or coherent action. If we act, we act out of the habitual. If no serviceable habit is available, we will use an unserviceable one and become either immobilized or incoherent, which is an amazing quote. So by understanding the balance between challenge and skill, we see that if we match our highest skills with appropriate challenges, we might find ourselves in an optimal state of performance or flow where we cruise along executing decision-making and interventions that achieve good outcomes. But if we are not up to the task and the challenge far exceeds our abilities, we'll be faced with extreme anxiety and either immobilized by fear and ignorance or compelled to incoherent and incorrect action for the task at hand, which may lead to suboptimal outcomes for our patients and our teams. The goal becomes to continuously prepare for the challenges that you may face so that even when you experience an extremely challenging moment in your practice, you can reach for the coherent action, for the serviceable habit, as Dr. Scary puts it, so that your skills match the challenge. These principles have implications for the kinds of cases we take on personally, where we choose to anchor our practice at whatever stage we're at in our careers how we design specialty teams, fellowship programs, board examinations, continuing education, as well as primary residency programs. 
So remember, if the challenge far exceeds your abilities, you may be paralyzed with fear and anxiety or begin flailing with inappropriate actions. If your abilities far exceed the degree of difficulty you face, you may be bored and need to find ways to stay engaged and vigilant during cases. One trick is to simply ask yourself during cases that are not very demanding, what's the worst thing that could happen right now? And how would I respond to it? Or while you're staring at that monitor, think about if any parameter, the heart rate, pulse ox, blood pressure, entitled CO2, peak inspiratory pressure, and so on, suddenly became elevated or significantly decreased, what could cause that and what would you do? And know that when your abilities, skills, and knowledge are matched with the challenge, you're poised to manage even an extremely challenging situation well. But you have to train to get there. Just like a big wave surfer or class 5 creek boater doesn't start out cool, calm, and collected when facing down those extreme challenges, we as anesthesia providers also don't start out knowing how to stay calm and execute appropriate action in dire circumstances that might arise in the OR. We have to train and practice over thousands of hours, and not just with easy cases. We have to think about and train either in our heads, in discussions with colleagues, or in simulation centers for the worst case scenarios if we expect to perform at the top of our game when we see those situations in real life. Now, before we go, I want to leave you with one secret tip, one special gift that might help you on this journey. Each of you listening, each of you who have made it this far in the podcast has a secret device that you carry with you always. You may not know that you have this with you. You actually have it with you wherever you are. You might be driving right now. Maybe you're on a run or mowing your lawn. Perhaps you're commuting or trying to get a podcast in between classes. You have this device with you right now. It's always with you. And in emergencies, when the shit hits the fan, all you have to do is reach for it to level up your game and prepare to throw down to the best of your abilities. This secret device is the invisible can of calm. That's right, folks. The tall boy of calm. The carbonated, fizzy, typically cold can of calm. You typically carry it in a little holster right there on your hip. Don't worry if you're running right now. The invisible can of calm is also weightless. You won't even notice until you need it. And when you do, when the blood pressure drops or all you hear is suction coming from the other side of the drapes, all you have to do is pull out your can of calm and crack it open. It makes that sound because it's carbonated, of course. And then take a little sip and instantly feel yourself relax because you got this. You put the time in, you practice for this moment, and you know what to do. And if you happen to notice that the others in the room, the OR nurse or maybe the surgeon even, could also use their own can of Calm, don't worry. Just pull out your six-pack of Calm. Crack off a can for each person in the room. You can actually hand these over the drapes because they're also sterile. If the situation escalates, say maybe the OR nurse hits the code button and lots of people show up, just roll out the pony keg of calm and start pumping that baby up and start pouring calm drinks. Pass them out. See what happens. And don't forget, for the truly dire situations, for the most extreme moments where everyone is starting to lose their shit and things are about to get out of hand, you've always got the calm bomb on your hip. It's good for about a room-sized effect. Just get it out, 
pull the pin and lob it right in the middle of everyone. Let it go. Boof. Instantly, you'll see people start pulling it together, calming down, and regaining their focus. The point being, of course, is that if you as the anesthesia provider can maintain a sense of calm about you, you can share that with others. It'll rub off. Whether it's the can of calm, the six pack of calm, the pony keg of calm, or the calm bomb, you've got all of these at your disposal. And when you release them, when you pass them out, when you pull that pin and lob the calm bomb, people will focus better and not let the anxiety ants crawl up their pants. You have an incredible ability from the head of the bed to release a room size calming effect by your actions and your voice. And oftentimes, that's exactly what's needed. If you lose it, if you fall into immobilization or incoherent action and start a frenzy attack of the situation and others in the room from a place of anxiety and loss of control, that's going to wear off on others and the whole team's performance is going to go down. So remember the can of calm. You always have this with you. Reach for it when you need it and stay in the zone. Stay in the state of flow and help others get there too. And with that, I'll catch you next time. Hey y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcast? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.